You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please find Romans chapter 2 in your Bibles. Today, we see in Romans 2, 12 through 19... That religious people need the gospel. And please stand with me. I'm going to read these verses. If you're new to grace, uh, we open our Bibles a lot. We stand for the reading of the word, at least when I preach. And I just want to remind you, this is uh, the word of God. It is uh, perfect. It is true. It is without error. And God has something for us today. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you are you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Lord, I thank you for your word and pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. Pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans is a really beautiful book. 
It's in God's book, so it's completely true and without error and powerful to equip us for fruitful life and ministry. Romans points us to a beautiful life, not a painless life, but a beautiful one, unashamed of the gospel, uncondemned by sin, and unconformed to the world. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel received through faith in Christ is what Romans is all about. Believing, resting in, rejoicing in, and living the gospel. We've been going through Romans verse by verse by verse. As we do at Grace, we go through books of the Bible. And what you'll notice here as we are going through Romans and we're now coming to the end of chapter 2 that Starting right about verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, you're realizing that we are passing through a spectacularly dark stretch in the first three uh, chapters of Romans. And what's happening is the Holy Spirit is painting us into a corner of absolute helplessness apart from Christ. Romans 1 gives people Uh, the idea that that God gives us over to exactly what we want, and outside of Christ, exactly what we want is evil, and we don't acknowledge God as God, and we worship created things. Romans 1 tells us that mankind suppresses the truth, holding it down in unrighteousness, denying God, fighting against God with every ounce of our being. Believing the father of lies, the ultimate truth suppressor. And you see this downward spiral of sin. I mean, it's, it's depressing, isn't it? it it's literally, it literally brings you down. It's a, the downward spiral of sin is this naughty problem that we cannot untie. It's like we've ingested rat poison. We are terminal. We're hopeless unless God intervenes. God's wrath is revealed against man's total depravity. We have nothing to commend us to God. And yet, we continue to think that our works give us right standing with God. Romans 2 tells us that the ground is level. Uh, Irreligious pagans and religious folks are all equally guilty before a holy God. All are under the just condemnation of God due to sin tells us that God's judgment is coming and God doesn't play favorites. Being religious gives you no advantage. Today, as you hear this sermon, if you are right with God, it's because you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and it shows. Your life actually reflects the reality of what's going on in your heart. If no evidence shows, you don't get a pass. This this is not a raffle, folks. This is not a competition. When it comes to citizenship in heaven, all are judged alike. Paul's been laying out this case. He's been laying it out quite nicely. And so now in Romans 2, verses 12 through 29, we see that religious people need the gospel. I think it's really easy to look at this passage and say, ooh, this is like really complicated. Actually, it's really simple. There's three main sections we're going to look at. Each section gives us an essential truth and then has a main point at the bottom that basically wraps it up. And so 
It's actually simple. Trust me. Paul is concerned that the Jews uh, think that what they do saves them. And so he's aiming to show them that possessing the law does not save you. Here's the main point. All your religiosity can't save you. Only Jesus saves. God is going to judge every thought through Christ. He's going to uphold his honor, and he's going to do it through changed hearts. So three essential truths that we need to grasp are right here in these verses. First truth, we see it in verses 12 through 16. Your religious position can't save you. Your heritage, your supposed standing cannot gain you access into heaven. Jesus is going to judge the thoughts of every heart. Look at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by it. So Paul is asserting God judges according to works because he's impartial. That's what we saw last week. And so the Jews that transgress the law are going to be judged by the standard of the law. The Gentiles who sin without the law will be judged by the law written on their hearts. First time we see the word law in Romans. It's the Greek word namos, and it appears almost 80 more times in this letter. And it's easy to get the wrong idea about law when you see it here. Obviously, it's not secular law. It's not like the law that are put in place by mankind in whatever place you live. But it's also not God's general commands found throughout the Bible. For a Jew, namas is the law of Moses. The commands God gave his covenant people Israel through his servant Moses. So those under the law are Jews placed under the law by God himself. They're going to be judged by the law. Those with access to God's moral law will be held accountable for their greater knowledge. On the other hand, those who sin apart from the law are Gentiles, not subject to the law of Moses. Those who never had opportunity to know God's moral law will be judged by their disobedience in relation to their limited knowledge. Takes you back to uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And the point Paul's making is, knowledge of the law makes no difference in judgment. All people stand condemned. Verse 13, not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. This is interesting, right? Now he's talking about justification. It's an interesting thing that he puts it here. The doers of the law will be justified. What Paul is doing here is stating a hypothetical impossibility. It's like snow in hell. Not going to happen. What he's saying is you can escape God's judgment only by doing the law. And then Romans 3 tells us that the universal power of sin prevents you from fulfilling the law. So Paul is pushing us forward to what we're going to hear, how by works of the law no flesh will be justified in God's sight, how Romans 3.24 says we are in Christ justified freely as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, justified. This verb and related words like justification, big words, occur 30 times in Romans, mostly from right here. Chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 1. It's a legal word. It's a forensic word. Um, and it means to declare righteous. 
We, we looked at this in the summertime when we were looking at the five solos of the Reformation and we looked at justification by faith. It's where when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God gives you pardon for your sin uh, and the penalty of sin. He credits to your account Christ's righteousness. He declares you righteous only on the basis of the merits of Christ, not anything you can do. Fits perfectly with James chapter 2, verses 20 to 26. The point there is no one's getting saved any other way than through justification by grace through faith in Christ. So Paul is pushing us on into chapter 3 just to, to remind us where we're going to be going. Verses 14 and 15, the Gentiles are being addressed. These are unbelievers who will be condemned. And he says, the Gentiles who by nature do the law. So without knowing the written law of God, pagans generally value and attempt to practice its basic ideas. Right? It's normal to value justice and honesty and compassion and goodness towards other people. And that reflects God's law. They are a law to themselves. And so the idea is that if you have no knowledge of anything God has said, you still will practice some good deeds and you'll have an aversion to some bad ones because you are pre-wired with knowledge of right and wrong. And that knowledge will condemn you on judgment day. Now some people think that Paul is referring to Gentile Christians here who were not by nature or birth a recipients of the law of Moses and who now have the law written on their heart in line with the new covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31. Uh, these verses don't refer to Jeremiah 31. Paul here is saying Gentiles know the commands contained in God's law and they know them instinctively. So don't confuse it with the law written on the heart in a saving work of God. The purpose is to show they know what, the, what God commands even if they don't have the law. They know right and wrong. So verse 15, the work of the law. The same works the Mosaic law prescribes. And the reason why? You know why you know this if you're not a believer? Because you have a conscience. Literally, you have knowledge. That's what conscience means, with knowledge. They have a conscience, you have a conscience, and that will either, as this verse says, will either accuse you or in your mind excuse you on the day of judgment. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul is, tells believers, don't violate your own conscience, don't cause someone else to violate their conscience, and if you repeatedly ignore conscience's warnings, uh, you know, like uh, in Pinocchio, um, Jiminy Cricket, Right? The conscience. If you repeatedly ignore the conscience's warnings, it will eventually harden your heart. It will harden your conscience. It will cauterize it so that you, you don't care anymore about right and wrong. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.2, the, the, he refers to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there's this instinctive sense of right and wrong that everyone has that produces guilt when violated. Uh, you know what it is. Even if you're a believer, you remember back when you weren't a believer, you know you had that built-in warning system that activates when you choose to ignore or disobey what you know is right or wrong. It's like an alarm. It's like an electric fence. 
So here's unbelieving Gentiles who don't know the law. They know right and wrong that the law points to, and they do the things that the law commands. They don't commit murder. They don't uh, commit adultery. They, they honor their parents, and so on. And, and Paul's saying, you know what? They're, they're all going to be judged, you and them. But don't think that the position that you have spiritually, that you think you have, is going to get you to heaven. By the way, the, uh, the existence of moral absolutes in, in society in general proves that God's moral will is known. And then he says in verse 16, on that day, the day, there's a close link between verses 16 and verse 15. Verse 15 talks about the present work of your conscience. Verse 16, the final judgment, and the work of the conscience will reach its conclusion on the day of judgment when God will judge all secrets. And he'll do so, as Paul says, by my gospel. Paul is not being possessive here. He's not saying, hey, I got a gospel. You can get a gospel, and we all get a different gospel. He's basically saying, uh, you know, this is not my own message. He's not saying that. He's saying the God-given message, the message that God gave me, that he gives to everyone uh, who has the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same message that Romans starts with. Look at Romans 1.1. How did Paul identify himself? A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so he's saying, look, um, according to the good news in light of the bad news of sin, God is going to judge and he's going to do so completely. He'll judge the secrets of all, and he'll be impartial about it, and it's going to be based on his thorough understanding of both your actions and why you did it. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So verse 16 throws us into the realm of secrets. Which makes us all shake in our boots, right? Secrets. Now, you don't need to tell all your secrets right now. Now, if you have a secret, let's just say you say, I know what I'm going to give my, my family member for their birthday. I'm going to keep it a secret. Keep that one a secret. Don't blow it. You know, just give them a good surprise. This is talking about something deeper. It's talking about the motives behind what you do. So it's not about what you're going to give someone as a great gift, okay? It's about your, your motives behind your actions, the secrets of your heart. 1 Chronicles 28.9 tells us, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Startling for some of us to realize this, but it's true. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God discerns the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Same idea. And Paul says it's going to happen by Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to judge. Go over to John chapter 5 and look with me at verses 22 through 24. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son... This is Jesus speaking. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So if you're a believer today, cling to that. That you have trusted in the finished work of Christ. You have trusted the true gospel message. And you know it's nothing you could do or ever earn that gets you right standing with God. If your religious position can't save you, Jesus is going to judge the thoughts of every heart. The motives. So let's think about this. Let's stop for a moment before I move on and just let's make some applications. Since Jesus is going to judge the thoughts of every heart... Jesus must have infinite knowledge, right? He must know everything. This proves his deity. So if you're a Christian today, you can trust Jesus as God. He says, I am with you always. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You can trust him as God. Another thing is, make sure that you have no secrets. Now, not the birthday gift you're going to give somebody. You know, keep that a secret. Give, again, give them a good surprise. But make sure, because God already knows, and he's the judge, Jesus is the judge, make sure you're not holding anything back from God. Make sure you have no secrets between you and God. He knows it all anyway. This is why we need to keep repenting. Keep turning from our sins to Christ over and over and over again. Martin Luther said it in, in thesis number one of 95 theses he posted on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg on, on October 31st, 1517. Here's the first word. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be, wait for it, repentance. Repentance. This whole life of the believer. So, so here's what you need to do. Tell Jesus all about it. Tell him everything. He knows it all. But in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, he wants to hear it from us. He wants our hearts to be so tender toward him that he would hear from us the things he knows better than we do. Tell him. And remember this as you're telling him. Jesus is merciful. Matthew said it well when, we were, when he was praying, I believe, uh, this morning after he was, he was leading, when we were singing, but he said something about how we, we like break out in anger or something like that. Look, God, God is merciful. Jesus is merciful. He is patient with us. One other thing I want to mention before we move on, what this means, what these verses are telling us is that everyone who does not hear the gospel is still condemned as a guilty sinner before God. And some of you will say, whoa, whoa, hold on, time out. Um, what about the person who a missionary never went to told about Jesus? They're going to be let off the hook, right? Because no one came and told them. That's not what these verses tell me. It's not what my Bible's telling me. All who do not hear the gospel are still condemned as guilty sinners. Or it would be better to avoid the preaching of the gospel. Since exposure to it would risk making innocent people guilty. So the evangelistic command rests on the fact that all without Christ are lost. What did Paul say in Romans 10, 14? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? This should motivate us to share the gospel. Not say, well, you know, if, if, 
If they want to hear, let them come and ask me. A lot of Christians are like that, right? Like, well, you know, I got the gospel. But if you want to hear, you need to knock on my door. Let's move on. Let's go. Uh, Verses 17 through 29 are are a big uh, chunk of uh, scripture here. And we're going to see two more points here. But Paul is basically saying, look, outwardly moral people, Jews and Gentiles alike, stand condemned by God's judgment. But now Paul is going to aim directly at his fellow Jews and tell them, neither your heritage, nor your knowledge, nor your ceremonies, uh, specifically circumcision, are going to protect you from God's righteous judgment. They're not going to happen. So your religious position can't save you. Jesus is going to judge the thoughts of every heart. He'll, he knows the motives. But the second truth, when you see this in verses 17 through 24, is that your religious privileges can't save you. All the privileges that you've been given can't save you. God's name, he says, is blasphemed due to hypocritical hearts that have lots of privileges and don't practice what they preach. So Paul is like sharpening his scalpel and going to bring his argument to a piercing conclusion. Um, They can't escape the implications. Their covenantal position, verses 12 through 16, their privileges, verses 17 through 24, can't save them. And he lists all the privileges of the Jews, verses 17 through 24. It's like Paul's like piling them all up, uh, description after description of the Jews' privileges, which actually mean little because they don't live up to their calling. So verse 17, he says, if you call yourself a Jew, also known as Hebrews, Israelites, uh, but by the first century, Jew was the most common name for the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Uh, Jew comes from Judah, meaning praise, uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a name for the southern half of Solomon's kingdom after his death. But since the Babylonian captivity, the whole race had the title Jew. Their heritage was a source of pride, but also complacency. It led to judgment, not praise. Paul is saying being a Jew is not a disadvantage. In fact, it's very advantageous. You have a lot of privileges. God had entered into a special covenant relationship with the Jews. We see this in Romans 3, 1 through 3, very clearly. And Paul would have expected everyone who heard these words or read them to actually see them as positives. There's no negatives in this list. God had given them very specific, significant advantages. He says, if you rely on the law, if you have a relationship with God, basically. Now, what he's doing here in verse 17 is uh, ancient writers would would call their opponents out for not uh, practicing what they preached. The Jews had taken pride in their name because they had been given the law with all its blessings but failed to do it, didn't profit them. And, and the law, verse 18, provided insight into God's will, enabled the Jews to approve what was excellent. The law was a gift. Romans 7 tells us that. It was intended to bring life to God's people. Their privileges were genuine. It was how they responded to their privileges that was the issue. So in verses 19 and 20, Paul's going to describe the ministry of the Jews uh, to Gentiles by virtue of possessing the law. They were to have a ministry among the Gentiles. They were to be guides for the blind, light for those in dark, instructors of the foolish. Basically, they were to be spiritual teachers of the Gentiles. They were to be guides to blind pagans, spiritually blind pagans. They were to carry out the tasks uh, through instruction, 
Because remember, they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. They had the knowledge of God's will, verse 18, and the ability to discern what was excellent. This was their role, their calling from God uh, as witness to, of God's power and grace to the world. Now Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 tell us, God had destined Israel to be a light for the Gentiles, uh, to open blind eyes, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Among themselves, the Jews were known, uh, and I quote, as guides in life for all mortals. They saw themselves as guides to everyone. The problem that's bringing out, uh, that Paul's bringing out here is that Israel failed to accomplish that mission. They were preoccupied with the law. They failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah that was promised, and so Jesus ends up calling them what? Blind guides, hypocrites. The, the mission as light to the Gentiles was given to the church. Acts 26. God had appointed Abraham uh, a blessing to all peoples, Genesis 12. That all nations were to hear of God's goodness and greatness. The Jews were to minister to the Gentiles. Uh, they were to hear of God's greatness, but the Jews squandered the opportunity. They expected Gentiles to come to them. They had light. They were wise in God's ways. They were able to teach children. Here, a reference to Gentile converts to Judaism. Uh, referring to the, the law as light was common. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. And so Paul isn't refuting any of the benefits, any of the privileges. What he is disputing is their application of them. Despite their privileges, uh, the Jews failed to live up to their calling. And so what he is charging them with is the same thing that Jesus charged the scribes and the Pharisees with. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And so what you've got next in verses 21 to 23 is a series of questions contrasting the Jews' practice with what they preached. So he says in verse 21, you who teach others, do you even teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And he's basically going through the Ten Commandments that prohibit stealing and adultery and idolatry. And the Jews didn't do what they professed. It hits us too close to home, I think, right? But verse 22, and then he says, you, have, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? This might be the most interesting one. You robbed, are you out robbing literally pagan temples? This is not about, you know, skimming money given to uh, the, the temple or withholding their offerings. This was referring to Jews who robbed pagan temples of their idolatrous statues all for the purpose to melt down the precious metals and sell them. Violating God's command in Deuteronomy 7. Can you imagine what kind of impact this would have? Where, you know, this is like a, a, a crooked, uh, quote-unquote, Christian businessman who says he believes in Jesus but swindles his, his uh, clients. And at the time, the uh, uh, Jews were under the dominion of Rome. The Jews had basically said, you know what? All that stuff that Isaiah promised didn't come true. We're still waiting. Uh, the deliverance uh, promised in Isaiah through the Messiah didn't come. That's what they were claiming. Well, it had come in the good news of Jesus Christ. They rejected that. They rejected him. 
So they were still hoping for deliverance through the law. They were still hoping through deliverance from the old covenant. That doesn't bring uh, salvation. It brings judgment. It's what Galatians tells us. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for Christ. So Paul isn't objecting to uh, the Jews teaching other people. Uh, that's their calling. But they violated the very law that they treasured and taught to others, basically saying, um, you know, we don't need to practice this. You do. <laughs> So Paul is indicting them of hypocrisy, which is what Jesus indicted people for as well, Matthew 23, 3 and 4. Jesus said, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You're like, Paul's coming down on them. He's coming down on them hard. Yes, he is. And, and these examples would have not only shocked the Jews, but they would have infuriated them. Now, not all Jews were committing these sins. This, these are representative uh, con contradictions that were going on. Uh, they were claiming one thing and conducting themselves in another way. And they didn't experience God's saving righteousness because of sin. So he says in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. They're boasting rather than repenting. Now, boasting in God is good. Arrogance, bad. Verse 24, he closes this section up by saying, as it is written. Now, he's going to quote his favorite Old Testament book, Isaiah. He's going to quote Isaiah 52, 5. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's, he's, he's quoting Isaiah 52, in fact, he quotes Isaiah 52 again in Romans chapter 10 when he charts a course uh, for, for gospel preaching. But what, what was this quote about? Isaiah is crediting the blasphemy of God's name where people are literally questioning God's existence and faithfulness due to Israel's exile because of their sin. So they had lived in such a way before the world that people were like, we don't think God even exists. And what Paul is doing very clearly is leveling the playing field between Jew and Gentile. This is his aim right here. He's saying your religious privileges can't save you and God's name is even blasphemed due to your hypocritical hearts. So why don't we stop for just a moment and make some applications to our own lives and then we'll move on. We have to first talk about hypocrisy. We all know what that is. Well, we say one thing but we do another. Proverbs 20, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Literally, from your heart flow the springs of life. Literally, the advertisements of your life, the billboard of your life. You're either going to advertise sin and self, or you're going to advertise the sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ. Believers are to hold God in highest honor in their hearts. 1 Peter 3 now, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So you have a God-honoring mindset in your heart, which leads to God-honoring actions in your life, which leads to God-honoring praise. But hypocrisy is a problem. Let's talk about privilege. Our society talks about privilege a lot right now. Let's talk about the privileges of Christians. We have so many Bibles, we don't even know how many we have. We can stack them up. But there is widespread biblical illiteracy among a lot of people that claim to know Christ. 
But not only that, there's widespread biblical obesity where we know it, but we don't do it. And we end up having a lack of spiritual strength and no muscle tones, spiritually speaking. And we do expect believers uh, to come to us and unbelievers to come to us. Isn't it, isn't it true? Let's just say someone does something to you and you expect them to come to you like, if they want to make things right, I might be willing to listen to the apology. And you expect unbelievers to come to you too. You know, look, they're messed up. If they want to know what I know, they need to ask me. Our privilege can get in the way. Let's talk about one other thing before we move on. I think the enemy of, of godliness in a lot of believers' lives is often mediocrity. Just doing enough to get by. I want to be middle of the road. I just want to be good enough. I, I don't want to rock the boat. I, I don't want anybody to give me any heat for being a Christian. And, and then you put that up against what Paul said about his own life, autobiographically. He says, I labor and strive with the power, with the energy that God works in me. Christians, I would just tell you, don't settle. Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for middle of the road, good enough. Let's not, let's not let too many people know we're believers. God doesn't want spiritual couch potatoes and armchair Christians. And what happens if you want to go for mediocrity? You want to just stay middle of the road. You will very easily slip into sin, and you won't even know you're in sin. Now, would you stand on the edge of quicksand? I asked second hour this. I'm like, Does anyone ever, has anyone ever seen quicksand? I, I've never been near it, but I hear it exists. But you wouldn't want to stand there and go, I hope I don't slip. I hope I don't fall in. You know, I'm going to be as close as I can to it, though. Can I just see, has anyone here ever seen quicksand? No. How about a riptide? Riptide? If you get pulled into a riptide, I had to get, um, it's embarrassing, but I'll tell you. You make fun of me later. Uh, one time I was at the beach when I was a children's pastor, had like 100 kids at a day camp, and we all went out into the water, and I, the guy in charge of the whole group, had to get rescued because he got into a riptide. <laughs> That's what everyone else said, too. How about fires? We can talk about fires. You want to get as close to the fire as you can? You're going to get singed. You know how many times the back of my hands have been singed? The hair on the back of my hands have been singed? Because I was starting my uh, gas fireplace uh, not wisely, you know, dangerously. Paul is saying, look, look, you, everything you think you have in your account can't save you. Jesus is going to judge the thoughts of your heart. Your privileges can't save you. In fact, God's name is getting blasphemed because of your actions. Which leads us to our third truth, verses 25 to 29, that your religious practices can't save you. The Holy Spirit must change your heart. So he's going to point out the practices of the Jews. He's going to challenge that Jewish idea that if you were circumcised, you were saved. He attacks it head on. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. It's profitable if you observe the law. So if, you, if you're obeying God then, and your heart is right with God, then get circumcised if you want. But you know what? He's talking about uncircumcised now. That It'll be like uncircumcision. So a, a Jew that disobeyed God's law had no more relationship with God than a pagan Gentile because the outward symbol was, you know, uh, how do I put it sometimes? Uh, zip, zilch, nada. <laughs> Nothing without the inner reality. 
Circumcision was a boundary marker, though, for them. They had made it this boundary marker. They had made it more than what God had intended. God had first instituted circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Genesis 17, God entered into the covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and all males descended from Abraham were to be circumcised on the eighth day as a mark of their identity as the people of God. But it became very significant to them when the Jews uh, lived as a minority group in exile amid pagans. And so to preserve their unity, they camped out on a bunch of their boundaries so they wouldn't intermingle with Gentiles. And so things like circumcision and food laws and observing the Sabbath became really, really big things. That's what you see in Galatians. These rites were the focus of the debate with Judaizers. And so external rituals were very important, so important to Jews that they thought being born a Jew, marked for males by circumcision, following those rituals would, would earn you heaven, guarantee you heaven. Here's what their rabbis taught. No person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. You know, no, circum, no person who's circumcised will go to hell. And Paul says in verse 26, look, look. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, his uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision. And he's basically going to condemn you. Verse 27, he's going to condemn you, which is a radical claim. Paul was stirring up the pot. Verse 28 and 29, he says, look, physical descendants of Abraham who have been properly circumcised uh, doesn't do anything for you because the circumcision is actually of the heart by the spirit, not by written code. He says in verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. So your praise won't come from man, like, oh, you did such a great job, but God. Only God's spirit can change a person's heart and make it acceptable to God. This is the point he's making. He's saying your religious practices can't save you. The Holy Spirit has to change your heart. So let's talk about this before we close. Let's talk about what, what that means for us. First of all, regarding our practices. Uh, the point about circumcision applies to any religious ritual. Um, it only has value if it's accompanied by heartfelt obedience. So you can apply this to believers' baptism. You can apply this to the Lord's Supper. These things instituted by Jesus himself for our benefit and his glory. They only have value in your life if they are met by faith and a commitment to follow Jesus as Lord. But the temptation to substitute the outward form for the inward reality is always present, which is why you have people claiming, hey, I got baptized, I'm going to heaven. It's not what the Bible teaches. Let's talk about repentance again. What's Paul trying to do with the Jews? He's trying to jumpstart them. The Spirit of God wants to turn their lives upside down and change them dramatically, and they need to admit they're going the wrong way, though. It's like the ship captain who refused to listen to the warnings to turn around, and he kept saying, hey, I'm more important than you. You know, you can't tell me what to do. You turn around, and then he finds out it was a lighthouse on a rocky shore that was telling him to turn around. He's going to crash and burn. Which leads us to one more thing we need to talk about. Regeneration. Look at verse 29 again. It's a matter of the heart by the spirit. He is talking about how regeneration is necessary and there's no faith without it. 
there's a, there's a Latin phrase, uh, sin aquan non, without which nothing. So without regeneration, everything falls. It's like a tent without poles. The Holy Spirit has to change your heart. And if you claim that the Holy Spirit has changed your heart, then it has to be evidenced in your life. You can't fake regeneration. You can't fake heart change. Let's say your, your cell phone right now has a dead battery, and it's been dead for a while. You don't have a phone anymore. You have a paperweight. Let's say you're sitting in your car in the driveway, and the car doesn't have an engine. It's not a car anymore. It's a boat anchor. You don't have any regeneration. You don't have any life. And let me prove it to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Here's what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, regeneration, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what is the heart's response to the change that the Spirit of God brings? It's just, it's just like what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is the truth that every Christian needs to cling to, that in Christ, I am no longer identified by my sin and bad works. I am identified with Christ and his finished work. This is why religious people need the gospel. Your religious position can't save you. Jesus is going to judge the thoughts of every heart. Your, your religious privileges can't save you. Even with those, uh, we have hypocritical hearts. And your religious practices can't save you because the Holy Spirit needs to change your heart. Every one of us is religious whether we want to admit it or not. Whether we acknowledge God or not. No one can say, I am not religious. That all people are adamantly committed to the things that we have as our objects of devotion. What do we do? We attribute worth and worthiness to things that we hold most dear. We think we're right. We think others are wrong. And we don't uh, yield. We just hold tightly to our religious you know, paraphernalia. We're all very, very religious. Think about how much you uh, defend fiercely your favorite topic, opinion, persuasion, or affection, be it a person, a group, an affiliation, a hobby, or a habit. We've got it wrong. Only Jesus can make things right, so we must repent. We must trade our false religiosity for true righteousness that comes only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Jesus will judge the secrets of our hearts, even what is hidden from those closest to us. So if you have a Bible and you know it really well, it won't be enough. People may think highly of you and praise your devotion to God, but that devotion will be meaningless unless God sees evidence of his saving work in your heart, which for the true believer ought to, ought to uh, drive us to seek Christ above all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that only you bring about righteousness and repentance and salvation. We thank you for these uh, continual reminders as we go through Romans of, of your truth, 
We pray, Lord, that our devotion to you would be true, that our hearts uh, would love you above all, and that we would seek you above all, that we would seek to please you above all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.